Okay, let's go ahead, uh, pray, and then we will uh, dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we humbly come before your throne of grace uh, through Christ, your Son, and um, we ask that you would meet with us this morning, that you would minister to us by your Spirit, that you would uh, grow us in the grace and knowledge of you, that you would uh, conform us more to the image of your Son. Uh, Lord, would you increase our understanding of uh, covenant theology uh, as you have revealed it in your Word, as you have um, united yourself uh, to your creation, and uh, would it all be to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing our study on covenant theology. Um, We have considered uh, the covenant of redemption so far. We've looked at the covenant of works. And now we will turn our attention to the covenant of grace. Uh, And then after this, we have one more week um, where we will look at uh, what can be called the unity uh, of the covenant of grace. Because as you will see, the covenant of grace really spans both Old and New Testaments. Uh, and so we want to see, like, what is the unity that is present here in the covenant of grace? Um, really, there are three primary covenants we can say that God has made. Uh, as I said, there's the covenant of uh, redemption. I was told my writing is not legible. Uh, and that was, my, that was my wife that told me that. So I'm going to try to do better. Um, uh, and then there's the covenant of works. And then there is what we are considering today, uh, the covenant of grace. Now, uh, we have to understand if we were to draw a line, um, these I would say are the three primary covenants, uh, the covenants under which all can kind of be summarized, if you recall. Uh, But there is a differentiation that is to be made between really the covenant of redemption and then the two that are listed here. What is the differentiation between uh, the covenant of redemption and the two over here? Does anybody remember? Yes. I was going to say the covenant of redemption is a triune covenant. Mm. Um, works and grace are between God and man. That's right. And you weren't even here for those classes, so awesome. But that's <laughs> right. It is triune. So there is uh, the aspect of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit partaking in this covenant intertrinitarianly, if you will, uh, whereas here, as was said, these are covenants that are made with man on both sides here. Uh, and there is even a further distinction that we'll make as it relates to the covenant of grace. But when we think about the covenant of redemption, yes, it is tr- uh, Trinitarian in its formation. They've covenanted together. If you recall, the Father, uh, he covenanted, if you will, a people for uh, the son's own possession, and it was going to be by him sending his son. Uh, there was then the son willing to be sent. And then what was the spirit's role? Do you recall the spirit's role that we looked at in that covenant? Now, this is important. I'm trying to make sure that we're, because we're going to try to tie these all together, kind of like we did last week. And so the review is good, making sure you guys are grasping kind of what we're moving through here. So what was the spirit's role? in this covenant that I kind of, I, I made a distinguishing um, remark as to the Spirit's role. 
Was the Spirit's role in the covenant of redemption the application and the sealing of the work of, of, the, of Christ? Remember, some people thought that we were talking about, oh, well, he seals and he applies and he conforms and so forth. And I said, that's not what we necessarily see under the covenant of redemption. Under the covenant of redemption, there is uh, his role in the incarnation, if you recall, his role in the anointing of Christ, and then his role in the resurrection. Those were kind of the distinct roles as it relates to this covenant that we said that each member played. The Spirit does apply and seal, and we will be discussing that here under the covenant of grace when we consider this Trinitarian work because we saw the work of this covenant is Trinitarian and the work of the covenant of grace is Trinitarian. We will look at, we will look at all of that. And as Gail said, this was uh, a covenant of works. We have to understand that the covenant of redemption was a covenant of works for who? That's right. It's inter-Trinitarian, so it's got to be one of them. And we know that Christ himself says that he was given a work to do by the Father. And he came to do that work. Uh, he fulfilled that work. Um, and what's, what I also brought out last week in regards to the covenant of redemption is that it provisioned for what would be needed when Adam fell into sin. You see, when Adam fell into sin, there was now a twofold need. There was still a need for obedience, but what else was there a need for? Satisfaction. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die was the curse, and in a sense, like the promised curse in many ways, that the minute that Adam took of the fruit, uh, he would die. Uh, his, uh, 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 his posterity would, would be dead. Uh, and so there was a need then for the, to be obe uh, obedience and satisfaction. And in the covenant of redemption, that was provisioned for both the obedience of Christ, his active and passive, um, and thus also the sacrifice that he made by his life. Um, on the covenant of works, we said that this was established um, with man, um, with man um, in Adam, that he was the federal head, the federal representative, that Ad as Adam went, so went all of mankind. Um, and so had he have obeyed um, and, and, you know, passed that probation period, there would have been some level of, like, where he would have secured the eschatological advancement um, of his posterity. Um, but was it, what was interesting here is it was made between God and man through Adam, um, and there was no mediator here. No mediator. It was truly do this and live, and also, you know, don't do this and die. Uh, there was no provision for sin in this covenant. Um, you know, Adam sinned, and the curse is present. Um, but what is interesting is the minute that sin breaks in, the minute that sin comes in through Adam's partaking of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is present? 
Did God immediately bring the curse to bear upon them in its fullest sense? Remember, we, we talked about a threefold aspect of the death, that there was going to be a physical death, there was a spiritual death, and in a sense, that occurred immediately. Uh, they were immediately separated from their God. And in many respects, what Adam did was rejected the covenant that had been made between him and the Lord and went and he made a covenant with the serpent. And um, then there was going to be eternal death. Those were the three uh, aspects that we looked at. Um, but what you see break in immediately is grace. You do not see Adam just being cast into um, eternal punishment immediately, uh, which God would have been right to bring all of those, uh, all, all of the full curse of the law in that sense, the curse of the covenant upon him. But he didn't. And so we see grace immediately break in. Um, and that leads us then to uh, the covenant of grace. So what is the covenant of grace? Well, uh, the 1689 in chapter 7, section 2, if you want to write that down, s- chapter 7, section 2 says this, Furthermore, since man, by reason of his fall into sin, had brought himself under the curse of God's law, that was the result of breaking the covenant of works, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace in which he freely offers life and salvation by Jesus Christ to sinners. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all those who are elected unto eternal life in order that they may be made willing and able to believe. So there's a couple aspects here that are key to understand. This was a covenant that God graciously uh, made between himself and man. Um, so we can in many ways say the parties of this covenant are God and man. Uh, there will be a distinction that we'll add here um, in a little bit. But what we also see is that the conditions, a lot of people will identify that the condition of the covenant is faith, as if it's something that we in ourselves you know, conjure up. But what is, ni- what is essential to see is that really when it comes to this covenant, there is a... Um, There is a condition, it is faith, but all that is required in this covenant, we will see, is supplied by God. If you remember, when we looked at uh, justification and we looked at faith, right, we said that faith was the instrument through which the imputation of Christ's work comes to us, and faith itself is a gift. And so all that God requires uh, for us to be partakers of this covenant, covenant, uh, he supplies fully. Um, It is through nothing of us. And so a good summary is, um, you know, it is God's plan of salvation whereby sinners will be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Um, That is the covenant of grace. And what we'll see is that there is a unity to this covenant. Um, Ultimately meaning, and this is what we'll get into, Lord willing, next week, is one way of salvation between both economies in which this covenant was administered both between Old Testament and New Testament. It's not that Old Testament saints were saved by a different means, uh, but ultimately uh, there's one Lord, one faith, one salvation. And so we will look into that more in depth uh, next week. And that actually brings us to this aspect of um, this aspect of these two economies. Like I said, there is uh, the Old Testament, And then there is the New Testament. 
And what we see is the, the covenant of grace being revealed progressively through Scripture. So we see it in uh, Genesis 3.15, and ultimately I would say all the way up to verse 21. Um, and then uh, we have, obviously, like I said before, it, progress- it moves through Noah and Abraham and uh, Moses and David, all the way then to uh, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And so what you're seeing is, as we mentioned last week, is this progressive movement to where in the new covenant, the covenant of grace is in its full and final expression. Um, Because it was all building up to what we see here, the seed who was to come, which is which was Christ. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Any questions, thoughts? Yep. Progress. No, so I'm talking about progressive revelation. So it's a fuller, there's, there's a greater illumination that comes as we move throughout the scriptures. It's, it's, the, un, it's the way that God's plan of redemption is unfolding uh, through scripture and within history. Uh, through scripture and within history. That is key. I mean, we see God revealing his plan. And how do we see it? If you remember when I actually taught on the incarnation last year, we talked about the prophecies of the one to come. And it starts broad, just like we see in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be a seed that's coming. And then you get an idea that through, uh, you know, Abraham's son Isaac, it's going to be from that line. Uh, Then you see there's going to be a prophet raised up like Moses. And then you see from the Davidic line, he's going to be kingly. Uh, And then you think of all the different um, prophecies in Isaiah. He's going to be born of a virgin. Where he's going to be born in Micah, in Bethlehem. So you see that it narrows down to where there can be one person that meets all of those prophecies. And so there is um, a progressive revelation in that sense. Um, And so that's where we say that really the covenant of grace is the overarching covenant, uh, we could say, of all the various covenant administrations through which you know, God's grace is revealed, we could say. That's, that's how we would look at that. Yes? <laughs> sure. So that is certainly going to require a discussion outside of this because you're getting into quite a bit there. Um, people will make a distinction, like the particular Baptists will draw a line on what was covenant of grace, what was not. Um, and their big concern there is going to be because of how the Presbyterians um, you know, look at the covenants with children and then baptizing children, so on and so forth. And so not something we can necessarily get into now. Um, but um, Nonetheless, I do believe that they are all, there's a unity among the covenants. And I understand there's a tension there, and there is a difficulty in dealing with those things. But um, I think in some sense, it's like you can go too far recognizing too much unity. Um, and then you can go on the other end and break the unity to where there's like, like discontinuity in it. And so we've got to find that balance. And hopefully, um, through what we look at today, as well as even looking at the unity next week, we can kind of 
you know, find where that line is. So, yeah. Okay, any other questions? Okay, and so that's ultimately what we're saying is that that progressive revelation leads up to the full and final expression where it comes to a, to a head, as it will, a climax, as it were, in the new covenant, in Christ's blood, uh, the one who was promised had come. Um, now, we mentioned who are the parties. We did say that it was with man, um, as was the covenant of works. But the key uh, distinction to make here, or one of the main differences, if you will, is that in the covenant of works, there was no mediator. No mediator in the covenant of works. In the covenant of grace, there is a mediator. We do not approach um, you know, God on our own. We have a go-between. Um, and so this is one of the, the differences, and it's an important difference. Uh, we see this language throughout Scripture, this mediator language. First uh, Timothy 2.5, if you're, uh, oh, I don't really have, I guess I'll write the, First Timothy 2.5, this is a well-known passage. Uh, there we see, for there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why is there a need for a mediator? It's a covenant of grace. Why is there a need for a mediator? Satisfaction. That's right, satisfaction. It's only because of his work that we're accepted. And it's only through him that we can have access to God. And so just because there is grace and God is gracious and God is loving, that doesn't cast aside the need for sin to have it, like, to be dealt with. And so the only way our sin is dealt with is in Christ alone. And so it is only in Christ alone then that we can approach the throne of grace. Uh, we see the same thing in Hebrews 8.6. Now, Hebrews 8.6 um, certainly has... Um, a reference to even thinking back to this aspect of a better covenant, better promises um, in comparison to the old covenant. But here's what we read there. He says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So um, the way that Turretin explained this, right? Because you're thinking, well, it's one covenant of grace. What does it mean better promises uh, better covenant. It's all under this overarching covenant of grace. Uh, it is ultimately, Turton says this, not with regard to the substance. That's important to understand. The substance is the same. What is the substance of the covenant? Or who is the substance of the covenant? Christ. And so that is the common substance um, really under the covenant of grace, whether Old Testament or New. Um, it was always with an eye to Christ, to the one to come. Um, and he says, uh, but with regard, uh, not with regard to the substance of the promises, but with regard to the mode, both of setting them, for, uh, setting them forth more clearly, of enlarging them, and more efficaciously impressing them and extending them to the Gentiles also. And so what you ultimately see is that this actually speaks to the progressive revelation aspect, that uh, there was more clarity. Uh, it wasn't then just the nation of Israel, 
uh, who primarily experienced that. Now we see it goes forth to the ends of the earth. When the consummation of the covenant of grace comes, um, uh, when Christ uh, comes and, um, and is the sacrifice for sin. So the substance is the same, um, but the mode or the, the, the revelation, if you will, is clearer and fuller. And so the overall point is, is that we hear, uh, the parties here are God and man via a mediator. Um, and what is nice or what is amazing about this is that we can now approach the throne of grace. Um, this should just shock us every time that we have access to go before the Lord, to enter in and to commune with him. Um, and it's not through anything we've done as we've looked at. Uh, but Hebrews 9.24, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 9.24. Here is what he does, or his role even as mediator. There we read, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so he is there in the presence of God in the true tabernacle, that heavenly tabernacle there uh, for us on our behalf. Um, And so now we can approach that throne of grace and we can approach that throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. Um, There must be reverence and fear in that sense, but at the same time, boldness. Um, Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And here it is, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so we see that Christ uh, is the mediator, as we know, but these are the part, that is the parties of the covenant. God, man, through the mediator, Jesus Christ. So let's think of the foundation of this covenant. What is the foundation of this covenant? We're praying to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That is generally the, prog- you know, the, the progression that you see. Um, that what we do is through the Spirit, you know, or by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father's. You know, but we're coming in His name, right? Um, that is really our only basis for our standing before Him. I mean, if we come in our own name, there's, there's no level to stand on. We have to come in his name, in his work, because he's the one that's made us right with him. Brian, I have a quick question. Sure. In, in Hebrews, um, Hebrews 8, um, 7 through 9, yeah, mm-hmm. it talks about how the, they did not continue in my covenant. It talks about the Davidic and the <laughs> Abrahamic and all that. What does it mean? For they did not continue in my covenant. Which one was this? Of chapter. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we see that ultimately, right? They had broken that covenant. Uh, they rejected God. They, um, uh, even like Emilio has said, where it's like, lo on me, not my people. There came a point where um, the, the people of Israel had gone their own way and judgment was to come. And even as we looked at it in Isaiah 8 when uh, Pastor Emilio preached it, right, even it would come into Judah all the way up to the neck. Um, and the reason being is because ultimately the seed was still to come. There was still a remnant uh, that would be held uh, and that would be brought forth. Um, Pastor, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that at all or if that... So what is the foundation of the covenant of grace? Where, uh, where is it established? Uh, where is it first revealed? Well, yeah, so... So I think the covenant of grace is the fruit of, or the, the covenant of redemption is the foundation for the covenant of grace. It leads to that. It makes, in a sense, the covenant of grace possible. Um, and they are, you know, while distinct, integrate, in, uh, they're connected. Okay, I couldn't even, I can't even pronounce the word. Integrally connected. So here's how I look at it. You have the covenant of redemption, right? And that includes the cross work of Christ, and then you have the covenant of grace, and that also includes the cross work of Christ. And so it's like you could circle it like this, and you see they are distinct, but they still overlap. They hinge on the cross work of Christ. Um, one leads to the other, if you will. But from a foundation standpoint, from a foundation standpoint, it's in Genesis 3:15 that we see the promise. And I believe uh, the establishment of a covenant in many ways. And the reason being is there is a promise that God is making. He's saying that I will put enmity between her seed and the serpent's seed. And then, interestingly enough, you see Adam's response of faith uh, in 320. Um, and then in 321, you see the clothing that takes place from the sacrifice of the animal. And so this is where we have to look. If you want to turn to Genesis 3.15 or Genesis 3, and we'll look at uh, this a little bit here. This is what we, see, what we see. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Um, and so as I said, uh, instead of responding with immediate eschatological judgment, 
uh, the Lord responds with grace through what one writer called the greatest promise ever made. I kind of liked that phrase, the greatest promise ever made. Um, why, why would we say it's the greatest promise? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One, it's because of who made the promise. God has made the promise, and therefore it is a sure promise. It is not like the promise of men that change uh, at times and based on circumstances, but uh, because of he who made it, it is sure. And it is also here where we see the hope of salvation through one to come. It is the first gospel um, proclamation, we could say. All had been lost. Uh, The curse could not be undone by man. Um, He could do nothing uh, to uh, correct his condition and where he was headed. But here in this promise, we have one who could come undo what was done uh, by becoming a curse. Uh, through the seed, though the seed would be bruised, signifying the death uh, of this seed, it is but a mere bruising. But the result ultimately is the head of the serpent is crushed. And there is certainly like some type of you know seed theology you can look at because the seed aspect has many different layers to it. But we know ultimately the seed that is referred to here is Christ. Uh, he is the one that will crush the serpent's head. Uh, but along those lines, in Romans 16, we see that we too, in a sense, will have Satan crushed under our feet. Uh, Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so there is full, complete victory that is to come uh, through Christ. And so in this promise, while Adam had said no to the covenant that, that God had established between himself and man, and he comes and he makes a covenant with the serpent. God undoes that covenant. He undoes that covenant. He declares war on the enemy um, and brings about the way in which redemption will come for his elect. And it is this promise that unites all of these covenants together. We really can trace this this promise thread, if you will, all the way through Scripture, it would be an aspect of just looking at biblical theology, which again is just the progressive unfolding of uh, various biblical topics, ultimately all wrapped around Christ to come. It's all about Christ, and uh, so here we could trace this uh, through. Um, Bavink says, So when the fullness of time had come and Christ has completed his work on earth, the covenant of grace moved into a higher dispensation. Some of us are shaky on the dispensation language, but that just means a a higher level, if you will, another uh, period, as it were. Um, And it's just as we said here, it culminates here. Uh, That's where the climax is found. Did you have a question? You're just moving? Okay. Okay. (laughs) And this is ultimately what we want to trace. When we're reading our Bibles, it's like, where do we see this seed present? Um, It has its, uh, you know, follow it all the way through to its ultimate point of fulfillment. Uh, Where does this promise find its fulfillment? Well, it finds its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. Um, And in a sense, uh, there is a twofold aspect of his coming, if you recall. It has to do even with what we looked at here. In his coming, through his incarnation and life, death, and resurrection, it was a fulfillment of what? 
fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. Uh, that where he had completed the work that was given to him. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, I struggle with some of the language, whether it's inauguration or consummation of the covenant of uh, grace. Uh, in many ways, it was inaugurated, if you will, here in Genesis. It, it was formed there. Uh, but you see it brought out, like reach its highest point in Christ. And so that's where I say there's a twofold aspect. It was covenant of redemption being fulfilled, completed. And at the same time then, this overlap that, that centers on the cross of Christ and his resurrection. And so there's a, you know, a, a fulfillment of uh, the covenant of redemption, consummation of the covenant of grace. And I would say, if you want to phrase it that way, it's like the consummation of the covenant of grace through the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ's blood. So it was when this covenant was inaugurated in his blood, here is the uh, fullest expression of the covenant of grace. What's that? That's right. What's also interesting to note is in this phrase, I will put enmity uh, between uh, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, is that there is a distinction that's going to arise there's going to be, in a sense, a seed of the evil one and a seed of uh, Eve, which would represent believers, uh, the, the believing ones. Um, and so this distinction that will arise, this in enmity arise, arises in salvation when they're converted from children of the devil, even as Christ says, you're of your father, the devil, they're children of the devil, and they're pulled out of that and brought into a relationship um, with now their father in heaven. And so this would be what we could say, even like if, you know, we've talked about this remnant theology aspect that is present where you really see it brought out in the, uh, the, the prophets. There's going to be a remnant that's left. But you really see the beginnings of remnant theology here where out of the clutches of the evil one, there's going to be a remnant that's pulled out um, and that there will be enmity present. <clears throat> Any thoughts or comments? The covenant of grace in was between God and not just mankind, but God and believers in mankind. Well, so the remnant I'm referring to is representative of believers. Um, that there is, um, in this covenant, it was God and man. Uh, through a mediator. So ultimately, this, those that fall under the covenant of grace uh, primarily are going to be uh, believers, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Um, in one aspect, I mean, if you look at Noah, Noah, uh, there, there, yeah, that was part of the covenant of grace, I believe. But there was also a, a, a common grace aspect uh, to that covenant as well uh, that, that benefits uh, the whole world. Um, in that it won't be flooded again, and so on and so forth. So, um, but yeah, ultimately it is believers that are partakers of the, the covenant of grace. Yes. Sure. Mm. Level at which we're talking 
Yes. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yes, to be a partaker of the covenant of grace uh, requires that you are truly saved. Um, and that is the distinction that was being made earlier between, you know, the Pado baptist side saying that um, you can have a mixed group, as it were, uh, between believers and unbelievers. And what we would say is that no, uh, in this covenant, to be truly partakers of the covenant of grace uh, would require that you are um, truly saved. That you, you know, that's why he's saying it's the elect that are the true partakers. Um, I was trying to distinguish between the aspect of the Noahic covenant, uh, and you see common grace present there. Uh, but on a salvific level, elect. So, but yeah, that's a good, uh, good point. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of like what we talked about in the sense of the proclamation of the gospel goes forth. There's the outward proclamation as we looked at even in, when we looked at soteriology, right? There's, that goes forth to everybody. But ultimately, it's only those that are effectually called that then are partakers of that covenant, truly come under that covenant. Uh, if they don't come under that covenant, what covenant are they still under? Well, they're still under the covenant of works. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. And so... Um, yeah, so there's the outward, but there's that inward call by which you are then made a partaker of that covenant, right? So there's a Trinitarian nature to this uh, covenant. Just like we looked at here, uh, there was a full Trinitarian um, uh, triune work done there between sending sent and then the Spirit's role. Uh, what is the triune, what, what do the Trinitarian roles look like under this covenant of grace? Uh, because we have to understand that even here, um, it is a full Trinitarian work. This is what Bavink says. He says, indeed, the covenant of grace established by God with humanity in time, human beings are not the active and acting initiators. Uh, but it is again the triune God who, who having designed the work of recreation now brings it about. And so uh, he is the one who fully brings it about. So what does the Trinitarian um, you know, piece look like to this? We just mentioned one of them. right? The Father's role this is going to take us back to the classes we looked at on the, the uh, soteriology uh, and, and the five points. The Father effectually calls uh, those whom he has elected. Uh, the Son, he is the covenant mediator. Under the covenant of redemption, what was the Son? Covenant servant. Covenant servant. He was given the work to do, and he went as the servant and did it willingly. 
Here, Christ, we would say, is the covenant mediator. He is the one who mediates the covenant. And this is what we see. And he's also our advocate, right? 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Uh, this uh, fits under his role as mediator. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so we see uh, he is there, not just passively standing there, but advocating, pleading on our behalf for us. Um, And then the Spirit's role. What is the Spirit's role? Ricky, you said it back on the covenant of redemption. Regeneration, you have, that's where then the work of Christ is applied and and, and the believer is sealed. He is our pledge, right? Ephesians uh, 1, 13 through 14. Uh, this is what we read there, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession the praise of his glory and so we see at the end of the day fully triune covenant of redemption uh, fully a triune work the covenant of grace um, it is by his doing uh, that we are in christ jesus and are thereby brought into the covenant of grace and so what is the condition or the requirements if you will of the covenant of grace um, well it's pretty straightforward it's all of grace that's it all of grace Um, we are given and provided with what is needed to be partakers of this covenant Um, it is a covenant of grace because it is all of god who does the work Um, and this makes perfect sense um, because the entry into and all that flows from it is of grace none of it is deserved if we think about it it's the covenant of grace um, is really um the covenant under which all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are in Christ have been dispensed to us. Ephesians 1, 3, right? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so uh, it is our position in Christ that places us in that covenant. Um, And it has to be this way if we think back to recent Sunday school classes that we've looked at when we considered our nature, our nature is what? What's that? Fallen. Fallen, totally depraved. We are unable and on top of that unwilling uh, to come to him. And that's where we see in scripture in Ephesians like 2 where it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath uh, by nature. And so what we understood was this, that that was our state, that was our condition, that was our nature, and so it's impossible to work our way into the covenant of grace. And this has been the case between both economies. There's no working your way into, when we talked about at the highest level of being, you know, elect or, or, or being saved. And so we saw that we needed to be effectually called. We needed to be made alive. We needed to be given the gifts of repentance and faith. This all goes back to everything we've looked at in the past classes. And as a result of that, we're justified, adopted, sanctified, and we're held fast by his grace, and we persevere. 
um, because of his work. And finally, at the very end, we're glorified. We're glorified. And so it is not our doing, but his doing. And so what comes to mind there, it's like, what do we have that we have not received? And if we received it, why do we boast as if we didn't receive it? We need to continually have this mindset that being under this covenant of grace, when we hear the covenant of grace, we should immediately think, not of my doing. Not of my doing. Uh, even as we read in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. And actually, if you go right before that, the number of times that it says, like, by him, or because of him, right? And so we see it here, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are works, are works required under the covenant of grace? I'd say not required, but expected. Mm. I would say they, they are, but not as the basis for us being in the covenant of grace. So that goes back to even, uh, you know, our justification and so forth. Uh, it goes back to faith. It's like works are present, but it's uh, him who makes us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so works uh, ought to be present. Uh, they are not the antecedent requirement, we could say. They're not the thing required beforehand, uh, but they are subsequent to. Um, this was a do this and live, and in many ways, the covenant of grace for the true partakers is a live and do. It's the works that flow from um, what has been uh, worked in us. Uh, it's the manifestation of the life that we have received. Um, so next week, you know, the plan is to look more, you heard it mentioned a couple times, the unity of these covenants. Um, we will, Lord willing, look at how are these covenants uh, united how are they in unity with one another um ultimately being centered on christ so any final comments or questions no okay let's go continue our worship